Ready graphics? Ready theme? We found out at some point, I can't remember when, that Murphy was in a way like the, uh, the women on the Golden Girls, surprisingly appealing to kids because in some ways she behaved like a an impulsive bratty kid, but she was a kid who had power and um, confidence. Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. Hi, I'm Lauren Milberger. And welcome to um, an interview episode a of, special the, interview of episode. the Murphy Brown Podcast, which Yay. are some of our favorites. I, I mean, for as fans, they're our favorites because we get to talk to the brilliant minds behind Murphy Brown. Yeah. Um, so we do talk about a few things. We want to make sure that everybody knows the, the references we're making in this. Yeah, we realized we started making some references when we were talking to Steven Peterman. And we just want to be sure that it's clear in case yes. you aren't listening to all the episodes. I mean, we hope that you are. Yes. But in case you aren't, or we haven't mentioned these things for a few episodes, it's we don't assume you're keeping a spreadsheet of everything we say. Exactly. So uh, when we talk about Corby, Corby is Corby Siamis, writer and producer of Murphy Brown. And as we have been learning from the writers from said writer's room, Diane English's right hand. Yes. And leader of the writer. And then at one point, Stephen mentions Bev Dixon, mm-hmm. who was Candace Bergen's dialogue coach. And then if you're unaware, the episode that Stephen and his writing partner, Gary, who eventually went on to executive produce the series, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about their credits when you get into the interview. Yes. Um, the episode that they won the Emmy for was Jingle Hell, Jingle Hell, Jingle All the Way, <laughs> which is the third season Christmas episode. Yes. So we really enjoyed this interview. It's it's a lot of fun. It's It was so much fun that it's actually going to be two parts. Yeah. So we're going to have part one now, and then we will see you next week for part two yes enjoy enjoy bye corby made me promise that i show you something okay Mm -hmm. should we just start off yeah just okay start with the good stuff then then we'll do an intro later we'll introduce you later all right anytime you start with corby is fine with me we agree (laughs) we agree uh i don't know if you listen to the show and it's okay if you don't i wanted to be a virgin when i came to you perfect that's how we like it just like rocky (laughs) horror picture show so um, I had a Murphy Brown scrapbook when I was 12. Oh, my God. Through uh, 16. Mm-hmm. Yesterday. Through yesterday. And I wrote a lot of letters to you guys. Oh, that's very dear. Uh, and, uh, and to Diane, mostly. And then to you and Gary when you took over. And you wrote me back twice. Oh, my God. Good for us. <laughs> Like, very impressive work. Uh, My parents are moving. So um, I've been going through a lot of my old stuff, and I found a lot of my scrapbooks. And then I found these. These fell out. Oh, wow. Including two letters from Diane's assistant telling her to leave me alone. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) She got the letters. She'll get back to you someday. So um, (laughs) I thought I would just quickly read them to you. Hearing my own words read back to me, the only thing better would be me reading it myself. Yes. Well, uh, some of them crack me up because uh, I, uh, there's a couple of underlines. Okay, so this is from January 5th, 1993. Oh, my God. I appreciate that they're typed out. It's yes. fantastic. I don't know. Well, my handwriting's horrible, so that's why. No, no, I, I am dyslexic. My handwriting is horrible as well. Um, so, dear Ms. Milberger, um, I, as a young girl, I signed everything Ms. Cause, you know. Sure. Thank you for your letter concerning Jay Thomas. Oh. There's a running theme here. Um, having written two of the Jerry Gold episodes ourselves, Gary and I love the character as much as you do. But as long as he's appearing immediately after us as another character, the general feeling is it would be too confusing to our audience to bring him back. <laughs> Again, I'm 14. 
Uh, And since Diane English... I'm treating you like an adult. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate Appreciate it. it. Yeah. No, no, no. You are. Uh, And since Diane English gave us our first break, we have to hope that Jay's new show will run a long time. At least you'll be able to enjoy him in that. Thanks again for watching. Sincerely, Stephen Peterman, executive producer, Murphy Brown. What a charming, what a lovely man that is. And then I, and then you wrote, and then I wrote you a second letter, probably saying, "Leave, leave me alone." You wrote me a second letter. I again, I, I do not remember how often I wrote you guys. I'm sorry. Um, I also had forgotten reading this that apparently I had a Murphy Brown newsletter because there was no fan club. Oh. Wow. And I started it myself. Okay, so. <laughs> It's like I'm opening my diary. Mm -hmm. Um, March 19th, 1993. Dear Lauren, we've become familiar. (laughs) This is my favorite part. We have, underline, received the newsletters you sent and apologize for not getting back to you sooner. But sometimes things get a little hectic around here and we fall behind. Tonight we're filming our final episode of the season and then we're all heading off for a much-deserved rest. We think the season finale is a terrific show and look forward to your reaction when you see it in May. Thanks again for your support and the newsletter. Sincerely, Steve Peterman. Yeah. This is executive producer Murphy Brown. I'm like one step away from the Me Too movement here, right? (laughs) Oh my, thank God there was a 3,000 mile difference. (laughs) Um, So thank you. Oh, that's great. I thought they were going to be more embarrassing when I found them, but I reading them more than once. I'm like, no. okay, they're very, yeah, they're, they're very lovely. sweet. The underline cracks me up though, because I just, God, how many times did I write you guys? Oh, <laughs> but I, I have to tell you, um, when you're, and Corby may have talked about this. Some of the other guys may have talked about this. When you're doing a show, you're in this kind of bubble where you're, all you do is is drive to work work all day, um, come home, get some, say hello to your family again. My son at that in 1993 was a year and a half, two years old. Um, and I wasn't seeing him much at all. And you, you kind of forget most of the time that the impact the show is having outside every once in a while. And we didn't, I mean, uh, the secretaries didn't pass on a lot of of, of fan mail and stuff to us. And, and frankly, the writing staff didn't get that much. So, um, it, it, it was nice to get that stuff. It was nice to have that reminder that the show was appealing to, and not only that, but to, to know that kids were enjoying the show. We found out at some point, I can't remember when that Murphy was in a way like the, uh, the women on the golden girls surprisingly appealing to kids because in some ways she behaved like a an impulsive bratty kid, but she was a kid who had power and um, confidence, and I think that appealed to kids. But it was always wonderful for us to know that a show that was obviously written for the most sophisticated audience we could get on network TV had an audience of kids who enjoyed the show too, smart kids too, like you. Well, I think it made us smart. I was saying uh, on one of our, I think it was the last episode we recorded, which has not aired yet, that as a very, how do I say, forceful personality and a young female, uh, I spent a lot of my childhood dealing with the the concept of being bossy. Yeah. And that kind of uh, gender dynamic and discouragement. <laughs> However, I was raised in what my family called a matriarchal society. 
And I was encouraged to be that. And I watched everything my mother watched. So for me, watching something, someone like Murphy during those formative years, completely informed how I approached workplace dynamics, how I didn't apologize for having an opinion. I had to learn how to have a, a graceful opinion as we're, you know, we're going to talk about the soon. I think the next one we record is off the job experience Yeah, and learning that lesson of there's a, there's a point when maybe your opinion could be packaged differently, <laughs> but it was very encouraging as a young girl to not be constantly told to shut up and, and be polite. This is absolutely. And um, two things that, that this brings to mind, what you're saying. Um, the first is I remember early on, you know, we all thought the show. I mean, I remember seeing the pilot uh, and 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 knowing when we were up for this job, I, we got to get on this show. This show is just head and shoulders above everything else we're seeing. Um it was so smart, and it and and Murphy, as you said, was such a an amazing character, such a powerful character, and Candace in the role, and all of that. Um, that um, uh, we thought this show is going to be a, a success, but the, much of the first year, it was a middling success. It was in the forties of I think at that time there were like a hundred and some shows on the air. It was in the middle of the pack. It wasn't until the end of the year and I think Emmy Award stuff and journalists obviously started liking the show and pumping the show. So the show was kind of – we didn't know it was going to become what it became. Um, and the second thing was we were hearing, you know, where is it doing well? Where isn't it doing well? England, for example, by and large, we were told the British did not care for this woman. Because of exactly the reasons you're talking about. Australians loved her. Yep. <laughs> and and um, I remember early on in, in talking about her in the writer's room and trying to figure out how do we write her? How do we write her so that she is funny and likable? And so what we really began to see when you, you write her like a man, you write her like a man wearing a dress um, because in her mind, she is the equal to or the superior to any man she's in the room with. And that was a lot of the way we approached her. Yeah. What's the, what's the quote that Diane said about Mike Wallace in a dress? Yep. Exactly. So since we didn't really get to introduce you, Stephen, um, I I wanted to introduce you with the email that you originally sent us uh, with your credits, because it it cracked me up that you wanted to introduce yourself with your credits to us. I'm, um, I'm still secure. I'm, I was an actor too. Okay. Artist man, we're all the worst yes, critics. Which we definitely want to talk about because we also write. And so I'm fascinated with the transition of from going from being mm-hmm. an actor to being a writer. But here we go. So story editor, 1988 to 89. Producer, 1989 to 90. Supervising producer, 1990 to 91 and 91 to 92. And executive producer, 92 to 93 and 93 to 94. A meteoric rise. It's an impressive rise. You have to understand, Gary and I, um, and we'll, we can talk about this, Gary and I were the baby writers on staff when we got there in terms of experience, but we were probably the oldest guys in the room, too, because both of us had had careers as actors and come to this very late, I mean, so late that if we had known what the odds were, the likelihood it was a stupid thing to try to do. So, I mean, part of that was, 
I am still somewhat surprised by the longevity and uh, of my career and by the, the things I've been lucky enough to be involved in. Well, I think there's a certain intrinsic quality that all actors have of where we are trained to to seek approval and validation and we're always waiting yeah. we're the product and hoping to be chosen so i think that's something that's hard to hard to shake even when you become the creator and and even when you are successful a lot of actors talk about what imposter syndrome right oh yeah. yes 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 took me a long time to get past the i'm an actor playing a writer on a show and so far so good but Every time Gary and I started a script, and poor Gary, when you talk to him, and I and I know you'll, I hope you'll get the chance. I know you. He's he is the sweetest. I've always called Gary the hardest working saint in show business. Um, he is an incredibly sweet man, and he had to deal with all of my insecurities. And every time we started a script, it was like, this is the one. This is the one where it all comes down. This is the one where they all find out. And we are escorted off the lot, you know, so it took me a long time to get past that. Well, I think something that's a that's a credit that I when we were looking over your guys's credits uh, as writers in particular on the on the show, something that stands out to me in your episodes is this this character based work, which Mm -hmm. granted is something Diane just put into the writer's room in general. But we were just having a conversation passing the time about being in college and taking Shakespeare in the English department versus Shakespeare in the theater department. And that idea of coming at it from an actor's perspective, from an, an objective and a, and an internal need perspective, which always stands out to me, particularly in your scripts. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to, I, we should have done this with Norm, but um, now you compliment compliment it. I mean, here are just some examples of my favorite episodes. Obviously I love your Jerry Gold episodes. That's a given. Um, Lovesick, uh, Gold Rush is absolutely my favorite. Um, Horseplay. Um, well, Every Time It Rains, You Get Wet is one of my favorites. I think it's one of uh, Murphy's best monologues when she comes in after her day and just like loads on Eldon. But, but, but exactly, like they're character driven and, and also are, I think, important to the run of the show. Something that I was reminded of is that uh, your episode, uh, Come Out, Come Out, Wherever You Are, which you just mentioned, is really the only episode that has a gay character in it. Mm-hmm. Was that something that, that you guys in the writer's room really sort of talked about in the sense, or was just a topic that you wanted to go over? Well, um, I'm not speaking out of school now, God knows. Um, uh, Gary is, uh, is a wonderful gay man. Um, Gary and I met doing a play down in San Diego uh, in 1982. Um, but when we first got on staff, this is a long time ago, obviously, Um, we were driving to work, or we had talked, we didn't drive to work together, um, but uh, we had talked the night before, we're going in the first day, we're going to meet everybody, we're very excited about it, we were tremendously excited about getting this job, Um, and Gary said, uh, look, I I don't know these people yet, and da 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 I don't want... I'm not comfortable yet letting people know I'm gay. And I was like, look, it's, it's your call. Obviously I'm not going to say anything. I'm just, he's, he's gay. I have a gay partner. Um, 
I wasn't going to say anything. And I said, fine, it's, it's, it's your call. You, you let everybody know and when you're ready. And uh, we, we sat around the table with Diane and Corby on the first day and everybody's talking a little bit. And then Diane took us all to lunch in the executive dining room. And she said, let's go around the table. Everybody talk a little bit about, about uh, themselves. I can't remember. I said something about I actually it may have been Gary was the first. I think as we went around the table, Russ and Norman, Tom spoke, and Corby, and then Gary. And the first, and Gary was at that point after four hours with everyone, so in love with the room and with being there that the first thing out of his mouth was, "I'm Gary. I'm the gay one." Um, and everybody else, everybody else said, "Yeah, we'd heard one of you was gay." But by now, we all figured it was Steve. Um, so uh, another thing that was very important to us, and it's interesting you talk about come out, come out. Um, when Most of the time when you do a sitcom, no matter how good the episode is, the best you're going to get from people the next day is, uh, I saw the episode last night. It was, it was cute. That's usually what you get. Whenever we could write an episode that, that tackled something a little bit more, that was always so much fun to us. When Gary and I started writing together and got our first job, uh, it was right in the middle of the first wave of the AIDS crisis. This is a very long answer to your question, but I think it's important as to the quality of, of who we were as a writing team and who, as a matter of fact, we, it appears we're now going to be if, uh, if things work out and we all go back and do uh, some more episodes of Murphy. But um, Gary had an, obviously had a lot of friends who were ill. Gary and his partner had been together for a long time. They were fortunately for the two of them had been monogamous for a long time, but nobody knew exactly what caused this and where it came from and blah. And so no, nobody knew if they were exempted or not. Um, but that didn't matter to Gary. Gary would on our first job, which was a kid's little cable sitcom, Gary would often go to the hospital before work. He would sometimes, if we had a long enough lunch break, he would go to the hospital at lunch. He'd visit friends of his who were dying. He would come back to the office. He would sit on the couch. He would cry for 10 minutes. Um, I would hug him and then we'd go to work. And in 20 minutes, we'd be laughing about something. And it was a catharsis for Gary. And it was a wonderful example of how you can compartmentalize when you have to. Um, but we got a chance to we got a chance to do that episode because of something the best episodes everybody says they're always the things that come out of real life. Peter Tolan, wonderful writer, um, who has since also again not out of school. Peter has come out as gay. At that time, I don't know if Peter knew he was gay or, but at that time, Peter was I think married and. As far as everybody knew, Peter was a married guy who had done musicals in school and was extremely funny. Peter came in having had a dream the night before about our CBS network liaison guy, a guy named Bill. Bill was probably gay, 
um, Bill was very cute. And Bill was often on the set. And, and Tolan came in and said, I just had, I had the funniest dream last night. This weird dream that Bill and I were in the Washington, in the mall, on the Washington, uh, on, the, on the Washington Capitol Mall. And we were, we were swimming and giggling and laughing. And, and I think he may have used the word frolicking. I know we used it. Not, I think he might have used it, but he told the stream and he said, isn't that, that's, it's just, that's the weirdest dream. And Gary and I looked at each other and was like, Jesus Christ, Peter, that is a homoerotic dream. That is the, and he was like, oh, it isn't. It's just, it's just this crazy dream. And uh, we talked about it, the two of us. And, um, and we, and we went to Peter and we said, we think there's an episode in this. Do you mind? if we take your dream and use it. And he said, I don't care. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you see in it or something like that, but he graciously said, no, you guys have an idea. Go ahead, run with it. So we were, we came up with this thing and it was so much fun for us. And obviously so much, so much fun for Gary to be able to explore the stereotypes of people and their impressions. Miles fear that he might be gay. Um, and him going to everybody on staff and and talking about what does it mean if I am and do you think I am and all of that stuff and and the reflections that it caused all the male guys on staff to have and the different reactions of the women on staff. Um, and um, it was also, I think, maybe the first episode in which we had a full written scene in which Murphy did not appear the scene where Miles goes to Phil's bar with the, the, the network guy and has this conversation with him. A wonderful actor oh, who we used, in, we used in a number of things and a terrific actor um, whose name escapes me now, I'm afraid. I'll get it, but you're, you guys can look it up. Um, but um, that was the first scene that Murphy wasn't in. And um, over... Uh, and it was a kind of a big deal to have a, a, a scene like that where she wasn't in because so much of the show was Murphy driven. And so much of the first four years and one of the reasons that Candace was so exhausted all the time was the enormous amount of work she had to do. But that episode for us, um, you got it. Yeah, that episode was so um, impactful, so wonderful to write. And then the best thing that happened was. And again, I'm sorry this goes on so long, but this episode is one of my all-time favorite things that I've ever been involved in. The day after it aired, we were in our office working on something, and we got a call from one of the assistants saying there's a guy on the phone from an AIDS hospice in Massachusetts, and he wants to talk to the guys who wrote last night's episode. So he gets on the phone with us, and he says, I just wanted you to know. And again, this take this back. This is where people are dying every hour of every day and nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. He said, I've got, I deal with people who are in terrible shape. They are angrier. They're frightened. They feel alone. Last night, and Murphy was very popular, not only with the Australians, but with the gay community. Um, Murphy had a big gay audience. Um, there used to be, there's a, a bar in uh, West Hollywood called Rage that used to have viewing parties on Monday night. And um, it was right near Gary's house. 
but um, he said when the episode started and people realized what the episode was about, the phone line started ringing. People were calling. People saying, are you watching? You got to watch. You got to watch the show. You got to see what they're doing on Murphy Brown. And he said, people, people who haven't laughed in a very long time were laughing last night. And um, Gary and I looked at each other like, what, you know, that wasn't, it's great when people say it's cute. And a lot of people have tough jobs and, you know, they don't like their work. They don't like their life, whatever. They come home on We've had people say to us, I used to I used to look forward to Monday night because it was the first day of the week and I didn't want to be at work. And I said, tonight I get to watch Murphy Brown and to have that kind of reaction meant more to us than uh, than anything. It, 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 it's one of the things that I treasure about the career that we've been able to have. And I, and uh, I look forward to when you get a chance to talk to Gary about it, because uh, um, it. After after some of the things I put him through in our partnership, it was nice that that was something that we did together um, that he got a chance to do. It was also um, one of the only times that CBS. I think that episode aired on a Wednesday night and it aired on a Wednesday night because CBS gave us a bullshit reason about, oh, we're doing some promotional thing with blah, blah, blah. And the truth of the matter was they were uncomfortable with the episode and they wanted to bury it a little bit. So they moved it to a Wednesday night. Um, And I and it got us an Emmy nomination. Um, So it was that was great. I think that's something that we as artists, that's why we're in this is the the opportunity for for commentary and, and change. And in, in, for me personally, I'm a huge lover of genre fiction and, um, and Shakespeare and these things that are universal platforms that you can experiment with representation and the idea of having the opportunity to put something out there that we don't see as often and represent those that are not the, the easiest and whatever time period, um, seeing those, those characters then, I'm so excited for because this this show has always done that. The show has always, you know, pushed the boundaries of what was okay or what was what people thought the demographics wanted to see. And I'm very excited for this this reboot and this revival because we have so much more to talk about now. Yeah, I mean the the biggest thing and the big reason we wanted to do the podcast too is to sort of show how relevant the show mm-hmm. still is. And there really is rarely an episode where we don't aren't able to connect something to today. I was just saying in an email to Corby that in one of our last, our last aired episode, we, and so he goes, we, I mentioned oh, mm-hmm. Antonin Scalia that about, we don't be trying to saint someone who now that they're dead and not acknowledging the difficulties we might've had with said person. And uh, she had mentioned good call on that. And I said, we don't have to go far rewatching these episodes for a, a recent parallel. It's all of these things are still happening and sometimes on the nose still happening. And, and really the main reason was we, well, we wanted to have fun, but um, we (laughs) wanted to bring the show streaming or on DVD because there seems to sometimes be this argument. Oh, well, the reason it's not on is because it's just dated and it's not. No, it's really not. (laughs) No, but I, I do think one of the big reasons it's not on was uh, from what at least I remember Diane talking to us about was the music licensing. No, 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 we know the real reason. No, we know the real reason. Yeah. 
But but it is interesting that you, you're saying that, and it's nice it, uh, because it, – it, well, it's not nice. It's sad in a way that it's relevant again. It, it shouldn't be. Um, but uh, it is. The interesting thing that we're going to be confronting when we get there, though, is that when we were doing the show – there was nobody else. Well, Norman Lear in his shows was was very much, and Roseanne, to her credit. Um, she may have been a difficult person to work with at that time, but she covered working class issues in a way that nobody else was doing. We're going to be coming on. And I know Diane talked with uh, several of us about this when she was trying to decide, do I do this reboot, reboot or not? Um, we're not going to be, you know, competing with uh, John Oliver, uh, Trevor Noah, uh, Samantha Bee. Um, every late night host has a wonderful monologue. Seth Meyers is great at it. Uh, Colbert obviously is great at it. Jimmy Kimmel has become the voice of the common man at it. So and, be, and we're going to have to find our own way into it. And I know Diane has some ideas about that, and we've all been thinking about it. Uh, but obviously, we won't be able to comment on the day-to-day stuff because everything changes in, in two hours right now. Um, but there are certain issues that remain in the public mind, and I think that that's part of what you're, you're feeling and that we're hoping we can, we can tackle. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I'm, we were just uh, – the next episode we're recording is Off the Job Experience. And the opening with the colonel about putting money into weaponry, just, I mean, based on what just unfortunately happened in Florida, you know, it's, I really am excited to see what, and especially because if we look at the John Olivers and the the late night hosts, I mean, these are day-to-day actual real life events that sometimes can be so polarizing because people have such immediate knee-jerk personal reactions to them. I'm excited to see what fictional characters can do using a, a fictional story and world and, and representatives that might allow people to see more sides of it because it's not directly in their face from a real moment. Yeah, and we, we actually brought this up with, well, Norm brought it up, really, when mm-hmm. we talked with Norm. Um, and this is before we knew, any of us knew that the reboot was going to be happening, mm-hmm. or I guess revival, I like to say the word revival. The revival. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not recasting. Yes, just to make people not scare people. Um, was that you know? Yes, there is obviously your your John Oliver's and your Samantha Bees, but there is something to be said about dramatizing something mm-hmm. and um, the impact that it has on people. And it is a different way. Some people can look at late night hosts as being preachy. I don't agree, but some people can. Whereas when they see something in a dramatic setting, sometimes it it seeps into your brain in a different way. There's no question, but my my of course my my cynical side or my I don't know jaded side says that the people who are going to watch this revival um, are people who liked the show, and if you liked the show, you were already uh, in this camp, and, and and if anything, positions have hardened in this country since that time. And um, I, I don't know, you know, what I, I don't know if minds will be changed. I don't know. I mean, the facts can change people's minds. I'm not sure if any of, uh, of this can. We're certainly going to do our best. Uh, and, and Diane, we always used to say, too, that um, uh, we weren't obviously we were all somewhat liberal in our in our leanings, but we went after whoever was in power. And we held them to account. And um, when the Republicans were in power, we teased them. And when the Democrats were in power, we went after them. 
Um, so we were equal opportunity because we were trying to make a show that was funny and entertaining. Um, it'll be the same now. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but, but I know, you know, Gary and I had to write the, um, uh, the episode that, that started off the fifth season, uh, Murphy's response to Dan Quayle. And that, that I don't think changed a single mind. The people who loved the show loved the episode. People who loved uh, Dan Quayle um, thought it was preachy. Uh, and it, some of it probably was. Uh, at the time, we were angry, and uh, we, we felt we'd been pilloried unjustifiably. And, and uh, so there were things in the episode now that I look at and say, well, maybe we're a little heavy on that. But, you know, a good, you, um, you do what you do. Sorry. Um, that's actually something I did want to bring up because the – having to take over the show, let alone have to come back with this reaction to this huge media circus that mm-hmm. happened. Um, you know, I, I sort of joke that I, I can't even just look at any of the coverage anymore because uh, I have a whole scrapbook full of it. Uh, and it makes me a little nauseous. But um, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about sort of the daunting, um, uh, you know, what you had to go through uh, having coming back, mm-hmm. you know, taking and taking over the show at the same time? It was awful. Um, it was a scary enough proposition to be taking over. It was a tremendous um, honor for Diane to pick us because, again, we had been the babies on staff when we came in, but we had stayed there, you know, for four years and 100 episodes. And um, Diane giving us, handing the show off, um, was a tremendous uh, sign of support. But then the Dan Quayle thing happens after, you know, after the, I mean, it's, it's Diane's final episode. It's the hundredth episode. It's the birth of the baby, everything. I mean, it was a spectacular episode and wonderfully done, wonderfully written, um, the audience going crazy. And then, you know, then Quayle does his thing and Diane, like a protective mama bear, every time Quayle says something or some other Rush Limbaugh, somebody says something, Diane can't help it. She says something. Um, and I think that was the Emmy Awards where she did her thing about, well, I think we raised our, she'll do a better job than the Reagans. And it was like, um, Gary and I were seeing this, we understood it was her baby and it was being attacked and we might've done the same thing, but we we're saying to ourselves, oh my God, Diane, you're not going to be here. Yeah, we have to deal with this. <laughs> Don't say anymore stop saying things because it just built it built over months and so it became like what the hell kind of episode is going to satisfy anybody this thing was built up so much in the public eye and how is murphy going to respond and how and this is our first time running a show and it, um, and it's this show and it's beloved and um then we're writing the script and then somehow copies of the script get out and Rush Limbaugh has a gets a copy of the script and is reading lines from the script. And if you want to know every writer's nightmare, it's Rush Limbaugh reading badly your stuff. Um, so. And I mean, Gary and I are like not almost like looking over our shoulder in the parking lot, walking to our cars at night. Um, And then the filming of the episode, we were so new to running the show. 
This was an hour episode. And if we'd been smart and more experienced as executive producers, we would have done it over a 10 day period or something. But we tried to do it in a normal week. So Candace jumps into the deep end of the pool, having been off, having herself been terrified by, you know, all this brouhaha. I mean, it's a TV show, you know, but it's on the front page of the New York Times. So we shot the episode in one night. And I don't and to this. I apologize to Candace whenever we see each other for having put her through that because we were too stupid to realize what we're trying to do here is enormous. Let's break it up. Um, but that was our learning curve as executive producers. Um, and ultimately, I think overall, a lot of the episode holds up. And I think um, our, what I'm very proud of is our use of real life stuff in the episode. Uh, the clips of Dan Quayle on television, the real newspapers, um, uh, real commentary. Um, I, I'm very proud of the way we were able to incorporate that stuff into the episode. And I don't, if most shows didn't have the opportunity or the reason to do it. Um, it's something in a strange way we wound up being able to do on Hannah Montana years later. And I was thrilled about how I love when you can do that sort of meta stuff and it and it it doesn't pull you out of the show because the show necessitates it. And your audience knows that they're watching a show that is that is relevant on multiple levels. So there's a lot about that episode I like a lot. There's a there's some of it I think was us again being a little preachy, but it was a very, it was a terrifying thing to have to jump into. And people used to say to us, wow, you guys must, this is great, right? All this publicity, this must be fantastic. And we were like, can't, just look over there, look over there. We'll do our first couple episodes and get comfortable. But, you know, it was just a monster moment in television and viewing parties and CBS and people doing you know, things about the viewing parties. It was crazy. I mean, in hindsight, of course, it's baptism by fire is great if you survive it. Yeah. But you don't know in the moment. (laughs) And we also then had to deal um, with that, uh, that first season back. Now there's a baby. How much do you include the baby? And we erred on the side of putting in too much baby uh, at first. And uh, we had to learn the audience they want her to be a good mom, but they don't want to deal with the baby a lot. The yeah. thing that people loved about Murphy was, you know, Murphy against the world um, and Murphy, the independent woman. So ultimately, even though I, I mean, we had some great episodes with the baby uh, and some really fun stuff. Uh, uh, the whole Barry Manilow run uh, uh, with the baby was one of something Gary and I absolutely loved when we came up with uh, Eldon's reaction to the baby and dealing with the baby. But it took us much of that first fifth season to figure out the balance. And it wasn't really until the sixth season that we, we really found our footing again, I think, uh, and recovered. Um, in hindsight, it's interesting because Corby, and she may have told you this, Corby has a, a very strong feeling that no show should last more than four seasons, 100 episodes, right? Did she say it? No, no she didn't. No. Oh, she used to. Oh, my God. This was what Corby had had certain things on the on the board written very large. One was they did that on on, on Mary. If they did it on Mary Tyler Moore. Mm-hmm. That's we in the book. Allowed to do it. We yep. have um, the, uh, the, the uh, big. Well, let's see. We have Anatomy of a Sitcom. Oh, uh, yeah. 
Oh, yes. Pictures of me and Grant dressed alike in that one. Um, and a bio that you wrote for yourself, which we yes. read. Oh, right. how wonderful. Uh, there's never, yes, I'm always happy to talk about myself. So please follow us on social media. We are Murphy Brown Pod on all those platforms. Uh, we are also murphybrownpod.com for our website and our email is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Yeah, you can leave us a voicemail telling us why you love Murphy Brown so we can maybe put it on the show or send us a little note from your phone mm -hmm. to murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Um, the number, if you want to just call and leave a voicemail, is 646-450-6902. And we have the Spotify playlist, Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist. The link is on our website if you can't find it. And listen to songs from and inspired by the TV series Murphy Brown. We love it. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Dan Quayle. <laughs>